Shalom, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Light of Menorah Ministries. Our focus is on the archaeology, the history, the geography, the customs and the culture, and even the language of the ancient Middle East, so that we can go deeper in our understanding of his word. What I wanted to do was I wanted to actually focus in on two issues. One, the Christian view of the sex of sex outside of marriage and abortion. But I wanted to look at these two issues and I wanted to go after something even bigger, more profound, the way we as Christians live today. Let's consider some very curious facts. When you look at the Merriam-Webster Dictionary and you look under the word fornication, today, in Merriam-Webster, that means consensual sexual intercourse between two unmarried persons. That's exactly what Merriam-Webster says. 21st century Christians, we would look upon it and say, there's a young man out there and a young woman, they're in love with each other. And if they have sex before marriage, they've committed a sin. Most Orthodox, conservative Christians, this is their view. Matter of fact, that's my view. I taught it to my kids because I would consider myself an Orthodox, conservative, traditional Christian. Now, here's fact number one. And this is very interesting. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, premarital sex for like a couple in love is not even brought up. The closest we have to this is found in Exodus 22, verses 16 through 17. And again, I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. Now, it's interesting here, what is the Torah saying? The Torah, a man, it doesn't say a married man or a single man, it just says a man. He seduces a virgin, actually the Hebrew word is patra, which means to entice, to persuade or allure this virgin, and she's not engaged. She is not in any way tied to be married, If he lies with her, he has sexual intercourse with her. And if he's caught, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. So the man is married or unmarried. We don't know. It's not rape. And there's no statement even of a sin. The penalty is, hey, marry her and pay the dowry. Or if the father refuses to have you marry her, then you still have to pay the dowry. But there's no sin. Now, that's one of the verses that's the closest to it. For 21st century Orthodox conservative Christians, Christians would say abortion is a sin and it's murder. And this is agreed upon by all conservative Orthodox Christians. No doubt about it. I'm... I agree with that stance. But fact number two, 
in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the specific intentional act of abortion, of destroying the fetus before birth, is not even found. Christian theologians, Christian scholars, they have a number of verses that they bring up to actually support the Christian view that abortion is murder. And all of us can find our own verses that would support our argument that indeed abortion is a sin and it's murder. Now the closest situation that we have in the Bible to abortion is found in Exodus 21 verses 22 through 25. If men are struggling with each other and strike a woman with a child so that she gives birth prematurely, prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the, wo as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now that's about the closest that we have to a baby in the womb who is somehow injured before birth. But this is not abortion. There is no law or penalty stated in the New Testament or the Old Testament against abortion explicitly. Isn't that interesting? Now, please know, for me, as a Christian, as a minister, as a Bible historian, for me, sex outside of marriage is a sin, period. And beyond any shadow of a doubt, abortion is murder. But if it's not explicitly in the Old Testament or New Testament, then how are these concepts sins? How is abortion murder? How is premarital sex a sin? Now, I want to do a side note here before we continue. I brought up the word, English word fornication, and in Merriam-Webster dictionary, it was consensual, consensual sexual intercourse between an unmarried man and an unmarried woman. And that's how we understand it. I've always thought it meant premarital sex. It, it, it actually does. Now, we're going to come, come back to that later, but I want you to understand something. Just because the word fornication means that today doesn't mean it meant that years ago. I'll give you an example. There are many, many, many English words that at one time meant one thing, and now they mean another. For example, here's a good one, naughty. The word naughty, the old meaning in the development of the use of this word in the English language, meant you had nothing. You were without. You had not. The English word not. You had nothing. You were naughty. However, now it means that you're evil, uh, bad, or you have bad behavior. That's an example. Now, fornication in the 14th century, this is when the word really come comes into use in the English language, it meant 
sex with a harlot, sex with a prostitute, and is also related to the idea of idolatry, worshiping false gods and lewdness. Now, this is fascinating. It means prostitution. It means harlotry, idolatry. Now, this is in the 14th century. The King James Bible was written in 1611. And in the King James Bible, in English, it uses fornication a number of different times. And what's interesting is we're going to take a look at that later. The King James Version is not talking about premarital sex. It is, but it isn't. So we'll come back to that in a little bit. So again, let's consider the Bible in its historical context. Now, if you go to my website, www.lightamenorah.org, Lightamenorah is all one word, and menorah is spelled M-E-N-O-R-A-H. So it's www.lightamenorah.org. And you go to the session description for this session. And this is uh, Truth Nuggets Lesson 5. I've provided you some links to some videos. So video number one is a video that we in Light of Menorah did at Tel Megiddo. You know it as Armageddon in northern Israel. So we did a work trip a number of years ago and to capture videos for lessons. I'm teaching in these videos at an ancient Canaanite altar, actually dated probably to the 28th century BC, around 2700 BC. I'm at the Bema at the high place. It's a pagan altar. It's a raised platform, a Bema, a high place. And this is where there would have been pagan worship there at that Canaanite altar. Now, I do that because the Hebrews in the Old Testament were surrounded by the Canaanites. And this high place is representative of all the high places throughout the Promised Land. God calls them Topheth. Now, Topheth means to spit upon. So the implication is that these are places of Topheth. These are places that are degrading. These are places that are disgusting. This is the places where you would spit upon them because they're, they're just so bad. Now, in the Old Testament, pagan worship involved immoral sex between temple prostitutes and the congregation. There was also child sacrifice to Baal or Molech. This is specifically true under King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Altars, like the one that are in the video, are also were found in the Hinnom Valley, west of Jerusalem. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, not too long before the temple's destroyed, God is asking Jeremiah to come and proclaim the awful truth to all of the Jewish people in Jerusalem, what they were doing is they were sacrificing their children to the pagan gods and then going to the temple to worship Yahweh. It says that in Jeremiah chapter 7. Or the sacrificing of children comes from the Canaanites. Giving the life of your son or daughter for a successful crop, 
for a successful growing season or for great business gain. You offered your children to the pagan gods for personal gain. Now we have to admit, this certainly seems related definitely to premarital sex and abortion. But how? Again, we don't have any specific statements in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament against premarital sex as we understand it today or abortion. Now, there's a, a second video, video number two, that you can find there in the session description. And again, I provide it for your further study. The presenter in this video is Pastor David Whiting, and he's from Northridge Church in Rochester, New York. This guy is an amazing teacher. I highly recommend that you watch this video. It's about 45 minutes long, but he takes you on a biblical tour of ancient Corinth. So he is in the ruins of Corinth. And just like me, he teaches the Bible in its historical context. So again, the video is at Corinth. And I'm telling you, the letters to the Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, will just explode. But as part of the video, Pastor Whiting takes you up the Acro Corinth. Acro means high Corinth. In other words, high Corinth, the Acropolis. And this is where you had pagan temples, uh, probably the city administration, and so on. And obviously, a place where it would be a fortress for protection. Pastor Whiting takes you to the Temple of Aphrodite. And Strabo, the ancient Greek geographer, who his life was from 64 BC to 24 AD. He notes that there were a thousand female and male prostitutes at the temple of Aphrodite. And this is what you did when you went to church as a pagan in Corinth at the temple of Aphrodite. You had female prostitutes for the men and you had male prostitutes for the women. This was an immoral, highly sinful act among these pagans in terms of the worship of their gods. Now, this was standard practice in the Roman Empire. Matter of fact, this was standard practice in the Greek Empire as well before Rome. Imagine the Jews and the Gentiles who are following Paul in Corinth. They're surrounded by these immoral, immoral and pagan practices. Now, fornication, word that is used, oh man, I'm going to say, oh, probably 38, close to 40 times in the King James Version of the Bible. Now remember, in the 1400s, fornication meant prostitution, idolatry, pagan worship. The King James Version was written in 1611. So what we find is very interesting that this is how the King James Version uses the word fornication. We kind of think that it only means premarital sex. And that's our 21st century view. Now, I have nothing wrong with that, but we need to understand that those that, that word had changed meaning. 
Now, in the King James Bible, that word is actually used to translate several Greek words. And when you take a look at the Greek words, and I don't want to go through an extensive lesson on Greek vocabulary here, but when you take all those words, they mean prostituting oneself, a prostitute, a harlot. They mean idolatry, unlawful, illicit, sexual intercourse. Now you can say, well, that really relates to the definition of fornication today, but you understand it's bigger than that. Now here's a few examples. I'm going to go to Acts 15.20, and we're reading a letter that James, Jesus' brother, was writing to all the Gentiles in Turkey. He's writing this letter, helping the Gentiles understand that they do not have to become Jewish to actually experience the salvation provided by God through the crucifixion of his son Jesus. Now in Acts 15, verse 20, from the New American Standard, we read, But that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. So here we are in the New American Standard, and it's true in the King James, that Gentiles are to avoid fornication. But wait a minute. This is a letter to Gentiles. This is a letter to married men, married women. This is a letter to unmarried men, unmarried women, to the young and old. So here, the word fornication cannot mean only premarital sex between a young man and a young woman before they get married. That's such a minor aspect of the word fornication. That's how we look at it today. But the use of it here in Acts 15.20 definitely is not premarital sex. Something else is going on. It more relates to the definition of fornication, the older definition of fornication, which is really prostitution, harlotry, and idolatry. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 5.1. In 1 Corinthians 5.1, I'm reading from the New American Standard, and we read, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as, that not, as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. In other words, somebody is having sex with his mother. Now, the word immorality is used here twice, but in the King James Version, the word is fornication. And fornication is not premarital sex. This is his mother. She's married. And she's having sex with her son. So it's illicit sexual behavior from a person who's married and a person who's unmarried, and it's a mother and her son. Let's take a look at Matthew 5.32. In Matthew 5.32, we read, again from the New American Standard, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now here in the King James Version, we read that it's not unchastity, but it's fornication. How can a married woman commit fornication if the definition of fornication means consensual sexual behavior between an unmarried man and an unmarried woman? 
It doesn't make any sense. So again, what we have in here is the word fornication does include premarital sex, but it's bigger than that. It's more than that. So the New Testament is talking about more serious behavior than two teenagers in love in the backseat of a car making love. Now for us as Christian parents, as traditional Christians, we'd say that's a sin. We want our kids to avoid premarital sex. But we can understand the word fornication as used in the King James Bible and the New American Standard means something far more serious than two teenagers in love having sex before marriage. Now, this is amazing. When we put the Bible in its historical perspective, from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, now God's people are immersed, immersed in pagan cultures. The Hebrews are surrounded by the Canaanites and the Jebusites, the Assyrians, and the Arabs. They're surrounded by sexual immorality and perversion. And it was legal. It was legalized and made holy because it was used for the worship of their gods. In the Old Testament, we take a look at child sacrifice, seemingly related to the abortion of our day, but it doesn't say abortion. This is child sacrifice. It's the intentional killing of children by a mom and dad, all for personal gain. Now, that seems to relate to the idea of many abortions today. But what about the New Testament? We never hear of child sacrifice in the Roman Empire, and, and there was none. What was going on in Jesus' day and the days of the early church? Let's go see. I've provided a link to a third video that I, you'll find, uh, I think, really interesting. It's a like a drone flyover of ancient Corinth, and you're flying over ancient Corinth in a reconstruction. It's really, really cool. I thought you might like it. Now, the flyover itself starts on the main road that heads into the ancient city of Corinth. And that main road, as it goes directly up to the walls in the city gate and over the city. And I want to talk about those walls and those gates. They were related to practices among the pagan Greeks and among the Romans in the Roman Empire. And it was called infanticide. It was the legal killing of your children. You don't want your kid? Fine, you can kill it. It was legal. Infanticide basically encompassed drowning, exposure, or abortion. So they did do abortion in ancient Greece and in ancient Rome. We have actually found, from an archaeological perspective, the instruments of abortion. You can actually Google that. Uh, and take a look at the images of the ancient abortion tools that they had even back into the 4th, 5th, 6th century B.C. I talked about exposure as one of the ways that they 
would do infanticide. Basically, they would take the baby outside the city, going through those city gates, and someplace outside the walls, they would leave their baby on a garbage dump or the manure pile to die. Just left to die, exposed to the elements. Now you know why I'm focusing on the walls and the gates. This was true in ancient Corinth. This is true in Athens, Ephesus, Laodicea, Alexandria, Rome. Throughout the Roman Empire, this was a standard practice, standard legal practice. City after city, babies are left to die on the garbage dump or the manure pile. I've linked you to a couple of articles that talk about infanticide in ancient Greece and Rome and the early church's reaction to this and how they saved children. They saved children. Our early church was so against this that they took it upon themselves to act to save the kids from dying. In Rome, if you ever visit, suggest to you that you visit the catacomb of Praetextus. Praetextatus, excuse me. Praetextatus. You go to catacombs, obviously Christians were buried there. They would carve out their burial chamber in the hallways, the below ground. And in the catacomb of Praetextatus, you're going to find smaller burial chambers because these were burial chambers for kids, little children. One of them has a word above it, and the word is stercorius. And you think Stercorius might mean the name of the baby, but it doesn't. Please excuse my blunt English, but I need to use this phrase so that it really sinks in. Stercorius means little shit. It means that this baby had been taken from the manure pile and given a Christian burial taken care of that little baby before it died. Another catacomb that you should visit, it's the catacomb of Calixtus. There are other burial chambers for babies where you'll see names like Projectus or Projecticus. These imply that these babies were abandoned on the dung hills outside the walls. There's many other graves there where again they have things carved in stone above the holes in the walls where it says the adopted daughter of or the adopted son. They adopted the children. The early church in the New Testament from the get-go, mostly Messianic Jews and the many Gentiles who were joining, they were against these pagan practices and customs. They were against sex outside of marriage and infanticide, including abortion. Now what's interesting with all of this the roots of the of christianity are jewish comes out of second temple judaism i say second temple judaism because after the temple was destroyed in 70 a.d judaism changes it becomes what we would call rabbinic judaism i don't want to go into the differences of the two but second temple judaism was different than rabbinic judaism and our roots come out of Second Temple Judaism. The early church itself practiced Messianic 
or Christian Judaism, a form of Judaism that was Christian. We're saying Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. So they were still practicing Judaism, but with a difference that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus was Lord, Jesus was God, and his crucifixion cleanses us from all sin. Now we got our views against the immoral and illicit sex and infanticide from Second Temple Judaism. A good example is Josephus. In his writings called Appion, in chapter 2, paragraph 202, he, Josephus writes that intentional abortion is murder and it's a capital in crime. It's a capital crime. So that means in Israel, in Jesus' day, the woman or the man, specifically the woman, would suffer capital punishment, death, for abortion. Now there's no need for the New Testament to teach that abortion is murder. Why? Because they're all Jews. And for them, abortion was murder. They all knew it was murder. Why teach it? We need to go back again into that culture. We need to go back into those days, taking the Bible into its historical context and to actually see that environment where the New Testament was written. But we'll have to stop there and say, where did they get it from? Where did the Jews of Jesus' day and before, even to the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century B.C., where did they get the idea that the concept of premarital sex is a sin and that abortion is murder? Now, I have been involved in studying Jewish writings and the concepts of Second Temple, Second Temple Judaism for years. I found nothing specific from Jewish scholars that gives me any idea that say this is the source of where all this came from. Now, there are great scholarly articles by Jewish scholars that talk about the Jewish views of Jesus' day. However, let me suggest another real possibility. It really made sense to me that this is, if not the source of the views of Second Temple Judaism, but it could be that which is addition to development of Judaism and even into Jesus' day and into finally into Christianity. Let me show you a Torah-based origin, a Torah-based first five books of the Bible for these early views that goes into Second Temple Judaism and the early Messianic Church. And remember, for Jesus, for Paul, for Peter, for the church up to 100 AD, the only Bible they had was the Old Testament. And the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, was foundational to it all. Now, if it's Torah-based, this, Im this implies God is the one saying that premarital sex is a sin, and it's implying that abortion, God is saying that abortion is murder. Let's consider following verses. Go to Leviticus 18, verses 1, 2, and 3. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan 
where I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Let's go to Leviticus 20, verses 22 to 23. You are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them, so that the land to which I'm bringing you to live will not spew you out. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nation which I will drive out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. Then we'll go to Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 32. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you are going into dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? That I also may do likewise. That you shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God, for every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods." The Hebrews are always surrounded by pagan nations. And what is God's command in the Torah? Don't do what they do. In the days of David, Solomon, and Jeremiah, pagan immorality and illicit sex outside of marriage was all around them. They were killing children for financial gain in the days of Ahab and Jezebel. God, in his Torah, is saying whatever the pagans are doing is a sin. Don't do what they do. They're abominable acts. God doesn't specify the abominable acts. Oh, he does some. He does some. In other words, sacrificing your children to Molech or Baal. But there were other abominable acts. And as we can see, as we put the Bible in its historical perspective, of the immoral and illicit sexual behavior between the congregations that attended pagan worship and the temple prostitutes. In Jesus' day, the early church, we're talking about Rome, Rome and Greece, and we're talking about immoral and illicit sex to worship the gods, like at the, the temple of Aphrodite in, in Corinth. But this was, this was empire-wide and infanticide, including abortion was an accepted practice among the pagans, God says in his Torah. And it was the Bible in Jesus' day. It was the Bible in Paul's day. It was the Bible in Peter's day, all the way up to at least 100 AD. Infanticide was an accepted practice among the pagans. Even Aristotle and Plato, in their own writings, support infanticide. It was okay to kill a baby who was deformed. It seems highly probable the rabbis in Jesus' day and before Jesus' day, they got it. The only Bible that they had was the Old Testament. And God said, don't be like the pagans. Don't do what they do. Don't be like the pagans in the Roman Empire, or even before that in the Greek Empire. God seems to be saying, without saying it, that the practices of the pagans, 
They're abominations. So the rabbis would get it. They would say, this is more than sacrificing your son. Take a look at what the pagan nations do. Infanticide is murder. Now the Bible doesn't say it, but does say it. It implies it. Don't be like them. Sex between two consenting Jewish adults, even in love, even about to be engaged, should be completely avoided and probably would be considered a, an act of terrible uncleanness and probably declared a sin. And the rabbis may have surmised, don't even do this. Even if in your love, even if you're about to become engaged, don't do this. Why? Because that's what the pagans do. Let's not have any hint whatsoever of behavior that the pagans would do. We recall what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5. It's in chapter 5, verse 3. There shouldn't be any hint of fornication, immorality, covetousness, anything among you. Don't be like them. What's Paul doing? He's teaching Torah. This is what the pagans did. And God has already said it in his Torah. Do not be like them. Avoid this. Avoid this sinful behavior. So again, with this background, let's consider what Peter teaches. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. And from the New American Standard, I read, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshy lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. He's saying, don't be like the Gentiles around you. Don't be like the pagans around you. This is exactly what the Torah says. Peter is teaching Torah. This is not a Christian principle. This is not made up by Christians. It's not anything new. Ancient Turkey was totally absorbed in the Roman culture. We're talking about the seven churches in Asia Minor, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Laodicea. It was totally under Rome and totally immersed in the pagan immoral customs and practices. And so we come to see that the Torah and God's declaration that we should not practice anything that those pagan nations do certainly leads us to conclude that God seems to be saying that abortion is murder, quite definitely. And on top of that, Premarital sex is a sin, something to be avoided, because that's what the pagans do. Now, I said I wanted to use these issues of premarital sex and also abortion to get at something else. Today, all of us Christians live among, amidst chaos and riots violence, arson. We're still 
under the pandemic of the Wuhan virus called COVID-19. God's teaching back in Torah is applicable then, 3,500 years ago as it is today. Don't be like the surrounding evil culture. We are to live as his holy nation, his royal priesthood. We're to be a peculiar people. And Leviticus 20.26 is just as meaningful today as it was for the Hebrews coming out of Egypt 3,500 years ago. Leviticus 20.26 basically says, Be holy, be kadosh. For I am holy, I am Kadosh. Sometimes we Christians think, oh, somebody is so holy. That means they're some special, unique person who acts so deeply religious and devout, and we still call them holy. No! God is saying we're all supposed to be holy. Peter says it. You are a holy, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Kadosh, holy, means set apart, separate, uniquely distinct, observably different peculiar. This is for all of us. We're all supposed to be kadosh. We're all supposed to be holy. We are supposed to be all distinctly separate as Christians today. God's call today is the same. We're surrounded by evil and chaos, but we are to be light shining in the darkness. We're to be like Jesus. We're to be like Jesus to be like Rabbi Jesus means we want to be true disciples of the rabbi. A true disciple of a rabbi wants to be like Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Then he says, you as my disciples, because you want to be like me, you're the light of the world. And we want to be the light of the world in the darkness. In other words, the light of Jesus shining through us. We want to live by John 8, 31 through 32 where Jesus is talking to a number of Jews who believed him, and he said, if you abide in my word, and I don't know what version of the Bible you may have, it might say, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus was not speaking English, and he was not speaking Greek. He's speaking Hebrew. And speaking Hebrew, the Hebrew word he would have been using there is amad. The idea of standing on his word, depending on his word, enduring the hardships of life, the hardships of these days, and we endure because of his word. We persist in his word and we do not compromise with the evil and corruption. Those verses back in Torah. It's bigger than premarital sex. It's bigger than abortion. But when we take a look at the Bible and its historical perspective all the way back to the days when Moses wrote the Torah, all the way to the days of Jesus, there's a much bigger picture going on. There's a much bigger application than simple premarital sex and abortion, and those are serious enough. But we in these days, the church, are to be uniquely different, a peculiar people. And that by our lives, we would bring the light of Jesus in the world.
We are to be holy. We are to be Kadosh. Shalom. <laughs>